I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the ECG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our podcast. We're very pleased today to be joined by Kevin Roos, who is a technology columnist for the New York Times, where he runs a column, The Shift, which is about AI, social media, disinformation, and all of those good things, and also a very popular podcast, uh, The Rabbit Hole, on the intersection of uh, technology and behavior. He's a best-selling author of two books, Young Money and The Unlikely Discipline. And today we're talking about his um, third book, the recently published book, Future Proof, which is about coping in an AI world. So congratulations on the book, Kevin, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let me kick off with the uh, one of your opening statements in the book, if I may, which is uh, you describe yourself as a sub-optimist, curiously. What do you mean by that? Well, I started from a position of optimism on AI. I am a nerd. I, my first job was building websites when I was 12 years old, and I've been very eager for more AI, more automation, um, and very sort of dismissive of the arguments that these technologies would create more harm than good. And then I started looking a little bit deeper into the technologies and the implementations of the technologies. And I became much more skeptical, not of the technology itself, which is technology, it is sort of ostensibly you know, neutral tool, but of the ways that the technology was being deployed. I started hearing more from people who were saying that you know, they were trying to use this technology to displace workers, to surveil workers, to make people's lives harder instead of easier. And I started digging into some of the history of automation and AI too, and there I found other reasons for skepticism. So I'm not fully a pessimist. I don't call myself a pessimist, but I am definitely less optimistic than I used to be, um, which is why I sort of came up with the term sub-optimist. And you gave yourself seven out of 10 on, on a sort of pessimism scale. And so you're probably more, more sub than optimist. Would that be fair? Well, the, the seven out of 10 was for the, the people who are sort of, I, I mean, that I am much more sort of, optimistic about the technology than I am about the current sort of power apparatus around the technology and the ways that it's being deployed in industry and by government. So your book is in two parts. The first part deals with um, a number of arguments which are commonly put forward to say, don't worry, it'll be fine. And um, you have some reservations about those arguments. So let's tick through those. The first one was that uh, we've been here before and it turned out fine. So I guess my question to you is that in the previous three industrial revolutions, the steam, the electricity and the electronics and uh, connectivity revolution, are we looking with rose-tinted glasses at the past? Um, did in fact it work out fine and did it work out fine for everybody and did it work out fine immediately or do you have a different interpretation? Well, I think the the statement that the sort of first three industrial revolutions turned out fine and made our lives better is true in the aggregate and over the long term. I don't think a lot of us would switch lives with our great-great-grandparents who, you know, largely had grueling jobs that were much more backbreaking than our current jobs and had much less disposable income and things like that. But I think it's too glib and sort of glosses over some of the actual history to say that the people who lived through these transformations enjoyed them. I went back and read a lot of contemporaneous accounts of things like the first industrial revolution, and it really stuck out how hard this was for people. It was not a seamless transition. The farmers did not seamlessly pick up new jobs in the factories. There was brutal factory conditions, child labor, worker exploitation. It took many, many years for these jobs to actually improve people's lives. And more importantly, it took many, many years 
by some estimates, as many as 50 years for workers' wages to actually catch up with increased productivity and corporate profits. So by the time the Industrial Revolution actually paid off for the people who were living through it, many of them had already retired or died. Um, this was not a fast shift, and it did not immediately improve people's lives. I would agree with that observation in the sense that um, it's this splendid book by Carl Pagliani, the, the Great Transformation, about the early days of the Industrial Revolution. It actually prompted me to go back and look at my family history, and I, I saw that 50-year period when my ancestors, who were previously you know, working in agriculture, were dispersed across the country, employed in this industry, and then unemployed, and then in that industry. And um, it was a very tumultuous time. So in a sense, you're pointing to the transition problem. It may eventually be fine, but it probably, it won't necessarily be fine immediately. Right. There's a great book by an economist named Carl Fry at Oxford. The book is called The Technology Trap. And it's basically about this question of, how long it takes after big technological transformations for normal, everyday people to benefit. His line that I quote in my book is that if this is just another industrial revolution, if this AI automation sort of fourth industrial revolution is just another version of what we've seen before, then that should actually worry us. Alarm bells should be ringing because that was really a hard time for a lot of people. So the second argument is that we should be thankful because the AI will do the boring bits for us, that we'll, we'll have more fun at work. So what is your reservation about that argument? Well, that sounds great. And in some of our cases, it's actually true. I mean, I benefit from automation in my work. I used to have to transcribe all of my taped interviews by hand, and now I just hand it off to an AI program that does it for me. So I think for some people, the lucky ones, AI and automation do chip away at the sort of dull and repetitive parts of their jobs and make their jobs more interesting. But AI and automation have also not done that in all cases. They have created entirely new categories of mundane and repetitive work. Um, there's a, a great book called Ghost Work um, by two technology researchers who talk about all the sort of low-level, you know, low-paid jobs that, are, that go into making automated systems function, like the data taggers and labelers and the you know, the mechanical Turk workers and all the sort of invisible labor that goes into these systems. And AI and automation can also and are often used to make workers' jobs more mundane and more structured and more regular and more surveilled. So people's jobs aren't necessarily becoming more interesting. Um, in places like, you know, Amazon fulfillment centers, for example, AI and automation are used to surveil and track productivity. And that if you ask the workers, do you feel like you've been freed from repetitive toil by this automation, they will probably tell you that they don't. In fact, they feel constrained by it. And this has been true throughout history. There were our examples from the early 20th century where the factories were getting automated and electrified. Electricity was coming into factories for the first time. And the, the owners of the factories thought, this will be great for workers. They will love this because they no longer have to lug around the heavy you know, steel pipes. A machine can now do that for them. And what they found instead was that a lot of the workers in these newly electrified factories were actually much less happy because the parts of their jobs that they enjoyed were not the parts that, you know, they, they enjoyed lugging the pieces of steel in some cases. They derived value and worth from that. They liked the camaraderie. So I think we just have to be careful in saying that automation and AI are going to make everyone's jobs better. I guess that theme of the... Uh characteristics of the accompanying social revolution after a technology revolution is coming back here. So 
if I understand you correctly, you're not saying that it's inevitable that we'll get only negative effects, but you're saying that it's not inevitable that we'll get only positive effects. Would that be fair? Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely what I'm saying. So the third argument is that we shouldn't think about humans and AI competing. There'll be this harmonious and synergistic relationship. We'll be working with AI. But you interestingly point out that the humans are usually the dead weight in those human AI partnerships. Could you explain that a little? Yeah, this one was extremely depressing to me because I really love this vision of, you know, humans and AIs working together in perfect harmony. You know, I like the idea of having an army of, you know, AI assistants beside me taking care of everything that I don't want to do. But in reality, the research is pretty clear on this, that in a lot of AI and automated systems, once the computers reach a sufficient threshold of performance, the humans add absolutely nothing to the equation. Um, and in fact, putting a human in the loop for a lot of you know, automated processes actually decreases the sort of output and, and accuracy of the resulting process. So, you know, I love the idea of human radiologists, you know, partnering up with AIs to diagnose tumors on CAT scans. But unfortunately, it's just the machines are just better than us. The last argument, uh, at least in my read, you sounded a little more optimistic, which is the argument that there will be new categories of job that we can't even imagine today. But you say that this could be true, but you feel that we're not putting enough priority on that. Did I get your argument right? And why, why do you believe that? Yeah, this is the part that actually makes me the most optimistic is, you know, when I think about the jobs that are being created today, I could have never predicted when I was a kid that there would be, you know, that you could make a living as a professional video game player or a YouTuber or a search engine optimization specialist or a social media manager. I mean, these kinds of jobs just didn't exist when, when we were growing up. And so there will be new jobs created by this technology. There always is. And we're already seeing some of those types of jobs emerge. That said, I think we need to be careful about sort of using that as an excuse, because I think there is still a question about whether those new jobs will be as good as the old ones, where they will appear, who they will be accessible to. And I think we are, we are kidding ourselves if we think that there will be a seamless transition where everyone who is displaced will immediately and automatically um, have the skills to do the new jobs. So before people uh, sign off from the podcast, uh, because it's all getting a bit dark, um, you then have the second part of the book, which is about the reassertion of human agency and is, is much more optimistic. You give nine strategies that uh, humans can deploy to cope in the age of AI to re reclaim their autonomy and their agency and their uh, significance. Let's take through some of those. So the first one is, you say, be surprising, social, and scarce. So is the idea there that we should focus deliberately on doing things that the machines can't do? Exactly. This was the result of, I interviewed a number of top AI scientists and developers and executives. And I basically asked them all the question, like, what can humans do that machines can't? right now? And what are they likely to be able, what are, what are our advantages likely to be, um, you know, years into the future? Where should we be focusing our efforts? Because for a long time, we've been essentially training people to compete with machines, um, teaching them to, you know, major in engineering, you know, learn to code, optimize their productivity. But that's not at all what the experts are recommending now. They're actually recommending that we, we move into areas where machines find it very difficult to perform well. There are three of those areas that I identified in the book. The first is surprising. So any work that involves chaotic situations, um, handling new emerging information, fast-moving decision-making, um, those jobs are fairly safe from automation, uh, which is why you know an AI can beat 
a human grandmaster in chess, but if you asked it to teach a kindergarten class, it would fail miserably. Um, there's just too many variables, too much chaos going on. Um, AI is very bad right now at what's called zero-shot learning, which is sort of taking new situations and performing well in them. The second category is social, and this is work that taps into our human desires for connection, for empathy, for companionship. These are jobs that involve caring for people, not just nurses and therapists and social workers, but also things like flight attendants and baristas and bartenders. I mean, these are jobs that are more social than I think people give them credit for because they involve not making things, but making people feel things. And that's sort of a good rubric for whether a job is relatively safe from automation is if it makes people feel things. And the third category would be what I call scarce jobs, which doesn't mean that there are only a few of them, but it, it's jobs that involve sort of rare skills, rare situations, exceptional abilities, and sort of situations that are high stakes enough and rare enough that we don't trust them to machines. So a good example of this would be like a 911 operator. When you call 911, you get a human because we've sort of decided as a society that even though we can automate that job, we have automated telephone systems. When you're in trouble, when something's going wrong, when there's an emergency, you don't want to have to sort through the phone tree. You want to get straight to a human. So the interesting part of your argument to me is that there's a literature looking at job classifications, and then there's the argument in terms of their vulnerability, and then there's the argument about the activities within them. But I think you're going a step further and saying that, well, for any job, there is always some potential to introduce these elements. And you give the, um, the example of bringing flowers. You know, you could bring flowers to colleagues in, in any job. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of a rehumanization potential in, in any job, depending on how, how we look at it. Is, is that right? Absolutely. Any, there is no such thing as a robot-proof job or occupation. We've learned this throughout history. We know this now. And so I think a lot of the literature right now on AI displacement, on automation displacement, is you know, focused on job categories. You know, they say, you know, airline pilots have an 89% chance of being automated. And, you know, teachers only have a 20% chance of being automated. And, and I understand why that data is the way it is. We have the data that we have. But in reality, we know just from common sense that there are ways to do any job that are more repetitive and routine and easily automatable. And there are ways to do any job that are more human. And so even within the sort of high-risk occupations, there are people who are doing that job in such a human way that it makes them very hard to replace. And in the book, I, I use the example of my accountant, who is a wonderful guy. He is a former stand-up comedian. And tax pre preparers are the most endangered job category that we know of. I mean, I think in, in an Oxford study, they, it literally found that they have a 99% chance of being automated away. And many of them already have by TurboTax and other automated systems like that. But my accountant, Russ, is a human, and he is very good at connecting with clients on a human level, helping them solve you know, the kinds of problems that TurboTax can't handle because their taxes are complicated or strange in some way. And he's very funny and humane and good at connecting with people. And so when you go to him, you're getting more than a tax preparation. You're getting a deeply human experience. And so that's why he's been able to stay in business, even as many of his peers in the tax preparation business have not. Let me take the next two arguments together. You say resist machine drift, and you seem to mean by that the resist automated lifestyles, and also demote your devices. Don't become dependent on devices. One particular suggestion you have is 
to institute a human hour. Could you explain to us what you mean by that? Yeah. So human hour is an hour every day when I try to do something that just reminds me that I'm a human being. (laughs) I know that sounds very dystopian, but really I spend, like a lot of people, I spend many, many hours of my day in front of a screen. That's especially true now during the pandemic. And I spend a lot of my time sort of responding to and interacting with AIs and machine learning algorithms. So, you know, we have these robots that we all carry around in our pockets that we call them phones, and they are loaded with literally tens of billions of dollars worth of AI research and development that is designed to steer our thoughts and our decisions, and that is designed to sort of commandeer our independence and to point it in ways that are profitable or interesting for the makers of the algorithms. Um, And this is true of social media, but it's also true of e-commerce. It's also true of things like Netflix and Spotify. If we all counted up the number of algorithms we interact with on a daily basis, it would probably, you know, definitely be in the dozens. It might be in the hundreds. All of our decisions practically are filtered through these automated systems. And so human hour is my attempt to kind of like detach myself from that and just say like, what do I want? Like, not what Spotify wants, not what Netflix wants, not what Amazon wants. Like, what do I want to do? How can I spend my time? And so I either go for a run, I go out in the garden, I you know take the dog for a walk, I read a book. Like, I just do something that is disconnected from the web of pressures and incentives that I interact with all day on my screens. So that sounds like uh, the idea there is it's not just therapy, it's not just a rehumanization of you, but are you also saying that if AI were to substitute uh, jobs and rule our lifestyles, it re- requires our complicity and having this this human hour, the reassertion of our innate preferences or intrinsic preferences as opposed to the guided preferences, that's the route to a more human future, is it the idea? Yeah, there's a strategic benefit to it too. I mean, we are making it pretty easy for the robots. <laughs> we are behaving in fairly predictable, homogenous ways. We are not bucking convention or expectations. I mean, we are we are being guided into a situation in which it becomes very easy to replace us because we are already outsourcing so many of our decisions to automated systems. So I think this is my attempt to sort of put a little bit of distance between myself and the machines and say, what can I do that's distinctly human, that is connected to no other incentives? What can I pay attention to that is sort of self-generated and that is not being fed to me. Um, so it's it's both a kind of therapy strategy and I think a really important part of succeeding in this automated future because we have to know ourselves. We have to know who we are and what we value and what we want because that's what's going to allow us to express that humanity in whatever we do. You probably came across the uh, research on the phenomenon of roboticization, which is quite interesting. It's this idea that we're so empathetic that we even imitate uh, an Alexa-like way of talking to AI and are indeed complicit in the the structuring of our lives around AI through our own empathy. Uh, So you're saying essentially resist the gravity of that. Yeah, be aware of the forces that are sort of roboticizing you and find ways to resist that because ultimately... All we have in a highly automated society is our humanity. That is, you know, almost definitionally what we bring to the table. And that needs to be a bigger part of it, of, of our day, is, is doing things that, that we independently arrive at as, as sort of being our preferences and expressions of our values. So we don't have time to go through all of your strategies. They're all actually very interesting. I would commend um, listeners to read them. But 
just a couple more I'd like to touch on. One of them is, intriguingly, you say learn machine age humanities. You're suggesting that there are some new skills to be acquired, which actually further the pursuit of these humanizing strategies. Could you say a little more about that, that idea of the new humanities? Yeah, so this chapter, this rule came out of questions that I was getting all the time from people who say, well, okay, I believe that automation and AI are going to challenge us. I believe that we are going to have to you know, be distinctive as humans. So what do I tell my kid to study? What do I, you know, what do I study? Should I major in philosophy? Should I major in art history? Should I major in engineering? Like, what is the path? I looked into this and I basically realized that like, we don't have a real model for this inside the current educational system. We just, there isn't a lot of work that is explicitly geared not towards subject matter, but toward kind of life skills and sort of humanity preserving disciplines that we can use to sort of buttress our own humanity. So I, I decided to come up with a few of these. Um, one of them that I think is really important that's sort of related to that machine drift question is I think that this idea of attention guarding or focusing, the sort of the ability to wall off our attention from outside influence for periods of time is like actually going to be a pretty big superpower. I think it actually is right now. And I also think it's going to become more so in the future because there will be more AIs competing for our attention and we will need to be able to sort of say, mm, I'm not going to click on that push notification. Um, I'm actually just going to sit here and read this book. I think that people who have that skill are going to be well-equipped. One of the other machine age humanities I recommend is what I call analog ethics. So these are sort of the basic life skills that we teach to very small children and then basically stop talking about. Um, and I got this idea from Frank Chen, uh, who's an AI investor, and he um, recommends that the people he works with, the founders and entrepreneurs he works with, read this book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it's a couple decades old. It's a pretty classic, you know, sort of self-help book, but it's basically about the skills that we learn when we're small children, sharing, playing well with others, like those kinds of skills that we let drop off the curriculum after a certain age, but that adults actually really need, especially when, you know, we have AI doing a lot of the sort of more technical sort of skills-based work. So I think that's, that's the kind of thing that we need to be including in, in more of our curricula. Um, I think we've really drained a lot of those sort of social emotional skills out of schools in favor of what we called hard skills, STEM classes. Don't get me wrong. Like I think those skills are important. I just don't think they're enough anymore. So stepping back from your book, it seems to me there's a paradox at the heart of it, which is that you're saying the future is not inevitable. It depends on how we shape it, how we reassert our human agency. But of course, you could ask, well, how inevitable is that reassertion of human agency? Because if it is inevitable, why bother to give advice? If it isn't, why bother? So what's your feeling about that dimension? In other words, the reassertion of human agency, are you also a sub-optimist in that respect? No, I'm actually fairly optimistic in that respect. I think that we will react. We always do. Um, every technological revolution has produced a sort of equal and opposite reaction from the people who are being affected by it. Sometimes that comes in destructive forms. Sometimes it's the Luddites, you know, smashing their machines. There was this uh, group of industrial workers in Britain who didn't become as well known as the Luddites, but they were called the swing rioters and they would go 
from town to town, just smashing these wheat threshing machines everywhere they could find them. And so this can be quite violent. We also had, you know, brutal labor strikes in the Gilded Age in the late, late 19th and early 20th centuries. But I think there are more productive responses we can have too. I do think response is inevitable, but the shape of that response is not. And so what I'm trying to do is to steer people into more productive forms of responding to technological challenges, which is not just sort of saying, I don't like this technology, I don't want it. It's more about figuring out how we can coexist and how we can keep our own humanity from being co-opted and diluted. And, you know, there are models for this going more smoothly. It doesn't always have to end in Luddites and swing rioters and labor strikes. It can end in better lives for everyone. I mean, AI could be incredible for our species. We could be happier, healthier. We could live longer. Our climate could be better. We could be working fewer days a week. We could be more prosperous. But those that really depends on the choices we make now, um, both as kind of workers and as, and as leaders who are charged with implementing this technology. I know you wrote your book primarily for the individual. Uh, it seems to me not to be as a, like a policy thesis. It's, it's how can individuals fight back. But um, it does strike me that the limitations of AI or the second order effects of AI are also second order commercial opportunities. You know, if there is a need to free oneself from dependence on machines, then that is a market need. That's a commercially addressable need. And in fact, we already have children's internet software that uh, prevents them from accessing the internet at certain times of day and so on. And that can be a, a premium product. The second thing you point out is that the both the pessimists and the optimists tend to underestimate the extent to which the future is already with us, that it's already happening. It's not entirely open. So my question to you is, are we already seeing markets forming around these limitations and constraints and second order effects that actually turn out to be in a different sense opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the big sort of takeaways from researching this book was that there is an economic shift already happening in response to these phenomena. Um, and I think there's a kind of bifurcation of the economy that is happening right now into things that are done and produced and provided by machines and things that are done and produced and provided by humans. And this economy is sort of, it has a kind of barbell effect where the way they get value in this economy is either to do something with very little human input at all, which is sort of the e-commerce model or, you know, these automated warehouses or, or, you know, all of the kind of logistics businesses. And then on the other side, there's this kind of artisanal economy that's opening up. We both live in the Bay Area and, you know, there are parts of the Bay Area where it feels like you're at a Renaissance fair because there are blacksmiths and, you know, shoemakers and people doling out handmade uh, ice cream. And it's just, it's a whole economy that's growing up around sort of high touch, extremely human goods and services. And that's not just sort of small businesses. I mean, one of the case studies I talk about in the book is Best Buy a you know, big box retail chain, and it was supposed to die. It was supposed to lose to Amazon and go away because it sold all the same stuff as Amazon. It was a you know, big box retailer sitting on expensive leases and real estate. It was struggling. It, you know, vultures were circling. I mean, it was like really on its last legs. And then its CEO decided that instead of trying to compete on price and logistics and efficiency, they would compete on humanity. So they started this in-home advisor program where you could actually call someone and they would come over to your house and tell you, these are the speakers you need, or this brand of microwave is really going to 
look good in this space or it's going to be what you need or, or this printer is uh, is the best for your needs and they would sort of be your personal home tech consultants and that was an extremely lucrative business for them because it turned out that a lot of people wanted to talk to a human about this stuff they didn't just want to go with whatever recommendation amazon was making they wanted to ask questions and be guided through this process they wanted a friend and a helper and so best buy was able to create an entirely new market around that and it basically saved them from debt and still today they they have that program i think covid has probably limited the in-home portion of it, but they're making a ton of money by being people's human tech advisors. The audience for this podcast is primarily C-suite executives of large companies. What advice would you have for them considering their own commercial interest and then maybe their enlightened self-interest, you know, considering all of these longer term and secondary consequences, and then maybe with respect to their broader social responsibilities? How should they be thinking about processing the ideas in your book? I have a lot of messages for this particular audience, um, and mostly they boil down to think about what you're doing before you do it. I mean, I know there's a, a lot of business right now being done on the basis of just sort of automating everything, digital transformation, RPA, all of the stuff that's being marketed to executives. And it seems like a low stakes decision. You know, all you're doing is, you know, automating some billing department task that used to be done by humans. But these things have real consequences for workers, for shareholders, and for companies. And they can go very right or they can go very wrong. And a lot of that comes down to who is at the table and who is included in the decision-making process. When automation and AI are implemented top-down with no input from workers, it tends to go pretty badly in the long run. And we know that from history. And there's an example, I talk about it at some length in my book about the famous Lordstown strike of the 1970s. There was a GM factory that implemented a whole bunch of automation without worker input. They had this amazing factory of the future that was supposed to be the best, you know, most efficient factory ever created. And instead, it created stoppages, it created strikes, it created blowback from employees, ultimately cost the company billions of dollars to fix the damage. And they ended up, what they ended up doing was inviting uh, representatives of the union and workers into the automation decision-making process so that workers felt excited about automation rather than threatened by it. They also you know, paid workers more because they were producing more cars and making more profits. They let workers see the tangible benefits of the new technology. And so as a result, it went much smoother when they did that. So I think there's a lesson in that for today's executives about how to implement this technology and when to do it and who to get buy-in from along the way. So thanks so much for spending time with me today, Uh, Kevin. It's been fascinating and congratulations on a great book. AI is probably one of the top three items on the CEO agenda right now. And I definitely recommend the book as a way of expanding our thinking on the second order and the longer term implications not only in the sense of fighting back with respect to our human agency, but also I think the limitations that you talk about are a different type of um, opportunity to be considered. So uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun.